Welcome to a very special bonus episode of the Basically Related Podcast. We wanted to dedicate more time in an extra episode to the Feast of the Exaltation of the Cross. Uh, the readings are so rich and thought-provoking, we wanted more time to discuss them than just in the brief period of our of the regularly scheduled podcast. Um, but even then, we, we're not going to cover everything because that's impossible. Sacred Scripture is... An endless and bottomless mine. If it wasn't, then this podcast would only exist for you know, yeah, right for three years, the three right. cycles, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Uh, you know, you can just continually dig into scripture and find new, new, new treasures yeah. and new meaning every yep. day. Um, but today's feast is a feast of subversions, revelations, paradoxes. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a beautiful feast. So let's um let's dive right in. So our first reading is from Numbers, and it's the very famous passage, Numbers 21, where God sends the serpents mm-hmm. to uh, bite the unruly and complaining Israelites, that the Lord sends these fiery serpents, or seraph serpents, um, some have said that the seraph is where we get seraphim because it has this connotation of of bright mm-hmm. or luminous. It's it's the same thing actually in the um, Genesis passage as the same sort of odd luminous uh, quality about them. But so it says that their patience worn out from the journey, the people complained against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up from Egypt out into the desert to die, where there is no food or water? We are disgusted with this wretched food. Mm-hmm. So right away, they're disparaging the manna that God gave them. Yeah. So they're disparaging the the bread from heaven. And that kind of makes God upset. Yeah. And then they're also testing God. So they're they're testing God in the same way that you could argue that the serpent tested Adam and Eve. They're accusing God of lying and deceiving them. Mm-hmm. You know, the serpent says, did, did God really say that? You know, if you eat from the tree, you'll die. Yeah. So he questions God. And now the Israelites are questioning Moses. Did God really say that we'd come out here and, and find the promised land? It seems like we're dying. And it seems like we have this terrible food. We'd rather be back in slavery. Yeah. So as perhaps a, I don't know what you say, perhaps a, a ironic turn of events. Turn of events or ironic <laughs> yeah. punishment. God sends serpents among them. So it's almost like God saying, if you want to tempt me, like the serpent tempted Adam and Eve, you will suffer from serpents. Right. You know, if you want to listen and heed to the whispering of the serpent, you will suffer the serpent's bite. Yeah. So in punishment, the serpents come and they bite the Israelites and they die. And they actually plead to Moses. In a sense, they, they repent to Moses and say, we have sinned in complaining against the Lord and against you, which is unique in this journey. Mm-hmm. You know, usually the Israelites don't repent. Like yeah, that. they're they, stubborn in their right, ways. Right. Yep. You know, they, they complain and then they get something, but they don't usually say, we sinned. But here they actually do say that, and God provides a remedy and says, to make the a, a serpent, a bronze serpent, and put it on a staff. Yeah. And the bronze serpent put on a pole, 
and whoever looks upon it who has been bitten by the serpent will live. So there's some, there's some intriguing points here um, about the, the bronze serpent staff. So we actually see the serpent staff again in two kings. It's smashed and broken because the Israelites are burning incense to it. But more interestingly, it appears in the Book of Wisdom. Hmm. And the Book of Wisdom offers an interpretation of the event. Okay. It says, For when the dire venom of beasts came upon them, and they were dying from the bite of crooked serpents, your anger endured not to the end. But as a warning, for a short time they were terrorized, though they had a sign of salvation to remind them of the precept of your law. For those who turned toward it were saved, not by what was seen, but by you, the Savior of all. Mm. So there's a little bit of... Prefigurement there, right? A little bit of, (laughs) if I might say, a little uh... little bit of sacramental theology, (laughs) right? So it's not what is seen. It's not the the serpent that healed them. Right. But it's God through the serpent that heals them. Yeah. Or through the staff. So analogously, you can say it's not the water that saves you Mm -hmm. alone. Yeah. It's not the words of absolution that absolve you, but it's God ultimately working through a sign. Right, right. Uh, yes. And that's, um, yeah, it, it's, we don't want to say, on, on one hand, we don't want to say that the the sign is arbitrary, right? That no. God could have used, in, in baptism, he could use lava. That doesn't make any sense. He could use anything, right? <laughs> uh, like, he could use he could use oil, right? Yeah, instead exactly, of water, exactly. Um, <clears throat> the sign itself is intrinsically built, uh, made for the sacrament in which it participates, right? Um, but it's not within the nature that saves the nature of the the, the visible sign. Uh, likewise, I think. You know the the serpent on the staff. Uh, this is not just some arbitrary like, oh, take one thing and put it on another thing, mm-hmm. and that's what I will, you know, heal. I, I think that there's actually something intrinsically uh, inherent to uh, these symbols that work as a sign of healing, right? Uh, that, that's that's a good yeah. point. The natural coherence of symbols yes, and, and yeah. what they mean. That you know, in baptism, water. Water washes away dirt yeah. and cleanses as a cleansing property. So as in baptism, water cleanses exactly. sin. Right, exactly. It, oil doesn't really do that. Right. You know, olive oil or you know, right. the chrism oil, it, it doesn't really yeah. cleanse. There's a, there's a fittingness to the sign. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. The yeah. fittingness. So you're right to say that, that you were bitten by a snake, you were suffering by snakes. Now you will look upon right. the punishment yeah. and be saved by the sign of the punishment. Yeah, exactly. Right. But it, it is interesting that you have this commentary from, from wisdom talking about signs of salvation, but also qualifying that it's it's not just the sign. Yeah. But it's God working through right, the Right, exactly. Staff. Exactly. Um, right, and that's to dispel this notion of uh, worship to a thing rather than God, right? Right, um, right. Because so. the, the, the thing as a proper symbol yeah. should point to something else. Yeah, It exactly. should point to a higher thing and not just to itself. So it's, it's not, 
that, that's why in the Book of Kings it ends up being destroyed is because they were burning incense to the staff. Yeah. Well, and they're saying, no, no, like, it's not the staff. Like, right. And, you know, it is – and this is – yeah, it, I think that's all right. But then we have this weird verbiage, you know, when we get to the image of the cross. On Good Friday, don't we say that we, like, worship the cross? Isn't there this, like, um, language that we use of – Yeah. 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 <laughs> I don't On know the what to do that. With the cross. <laughs> um. Yeah, I don't know if that's like a loose translation, <laughs> or, but well, this idea of like worshiping the cross. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, may, maybe it's this idea that Christ, Christ's life is is like the cross is not again arbitrary to to his life. It's actually intrinsic to what his mission is, and so you can't yeah. really separate the life of Christ. Christ himself from the cross, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. I, I would be curious about yeah, the exact wordage because sometimes you have the benediction, you have adoration, yeah. veneration. Um, but I do think you ever, so often get worship. Now, that could be yeah. just a bad translation. But it might be that you're, you're right, that Christ and the cross are so united yeah. and so integral right. that they're... They're they're inseparable. Yeah. Like that that the cross, you know, it's like the to follow the cross is to follow Christ. Right. To follow Christ is to follow the cross. And know, like but. the you can think of almost like the wood of the cross being soaked with the blood of Christ. Yes. It almost becomes something different than just wood, right? It's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's true that yeah. that it's not just an instrument of torture, but it's actually the the thing of salvation, the right. instrument of salvation. Yeah. Yep. So anyway, that was a little divergent. We'll get to the cross in a second. Oh yes. <laughs> oh yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, but you know, I'm reminded of that um, that symbol of the the, the medical um, staff, right, with mm-hmm. the, the serpents. Um, I believe that's a, a Greek image, but you know, symbolism happens, as Jonathan Pujol would say, and that's across right. all cultures, um, we do see a universal universal symbology, uh, universal meaning behind suffering. And uh, how all men, despite their cultures, are saved, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or at least, at least at this point, um, before the ultimate act of redemption on the cross, how some men can find healing, right? Yeah. And um, you know, Peterson has really analyzed this passage. Um, not, I don't want to say ad nauseum, <laughs> but he 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 has talked about this passage a lot. And I think from that psychoanalytical perspective, there's a lot there. Mm-hmm. Uh, like this idea that once you look upon that which causes suffering, that is already the beginning of your healing, right? Um, yeah. No, it's, um, I think that'll, that'll come to light in the gospel that this passage is connected to and, in fact, explicitly referenced by yeah. Christ. But... Yeah, Jung has a few things on this connection of why did Christ connect himself to the serpent? Like, why would he... Because the serpent is, although archetypally ambivalent sometimes, you know, there's there's a side to the serpent that mm-hmm. is evil and, you know, venomous, and it bites and kills, but then there's this also this aspect of the serpent as that which symbolizes revelation. Mm. That's part of the serpent in the 
uh, certainly a Gnostic interpretation of the of the serpent in the garden is that he gave knowledge yeah. to Adam and Eve. Right. He was a, a revelatory uh, creature. And so the serpents have this this uh, aspect of change to them mm. and, and revelation. And so you're looking upon something that at one time was evil, bit the Israelites, but on the, now it seems to be revealing something about God. Yeah, right. At the same time. Right. And Christ is going to say that that in I, I'm I, I reveal something on the cross right, to you. Right. And I think you know, just from that purely natural um, perspective, uh, when you study, it, when you study, you know, I don't want to make it so, sound so clinical. When you look upon and gaze and meditate on um, the faults in your life, right, like the sins that that which is poisoning you. Uh, then you will be able to overcome them. You know, the, the, the last thing you want to do um, in uh, w- with your faults is to sweep them under the rug, right? Uh, or to say, like, I'm okay, you're okay. Why do I go to confession? I don't need confession, you know. But we have to stare sin in the face, in a sense. Uh, and, and that's, again, that's the first step of overcoming it. And so it's, you know, this idea that these serpents are causing death among the community, Moses' community. And now you have as an image of the serpent that's not just an image that people like go up to, to look at, but it's actually uh, it's, it's, a, it's a bronze image that's put upon a pole. So it's almost like, uh, like magnifying the, the, the fault, right? Um, like st- not just looking at it, but actually gazing upon it and, yeah. and, and integrating it into their minds and, and their hearts. Well, well it, as you said, it's, it's magnifying. The language around the serpent and, and bronze, seraph, fiery, is this idea of bright. Yeah. So it's not only you know, lifted up, but it's something luminous. Illuminated, yeah, Yeah, and exactly. that's illuminating you. And then you have this sort of back and forth of judgment and death mm-hmm. that you're looking upon. They're supposed to look upon the thing that is God's judgment upon them. Yeah. Which is the serpents that came to kill them. And it's also their death. Right. But somehow by looking upon judgment and death, you're saved. Yeah. That's right. Like some, something about that. Right. And, you know, trying to put yourself into that um, perspective, that uh, Israelite perspective, where, you know, you, you, I can just imagine, like, the sight of a serpent should cause ho- horror if that's what's killing your right. community. And then to immortalize that, right, as an image, I'm sure it, it probably brought scandal to some people. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. here, Moses is like, are you making light of our suffering and death? Like, why are you upholding this? Like, shouldn't we be crushing the serpents and not immortalizing them in bronze and, and lifting them up, right? Right, um, right. So. Yeah, it just, it's uh, it's pretty well attested to that, you know, serpents are, in the ancient world, things to be shunned. You know, like, they're, they're, they're dirty things. They're, they're things that, again, have maybe two sides to them, but generally are bringers of, of death. Yeah, exactly. And you're right. It's like you're asking me to look upon an instrument of death yeah. and telling me that it'll bring healing. Yeah, right. I think we'll, we'll get into it. But again, because Christianity is so integrated into our Western world, like we don't quite understand that point about 
the crucifixion mm-hmm. is that it's actually an instrument of death. And now, you know, it's like people wear all kinds of jewelry. Right. But yeah, it's actually yeah. to look upon crucifixion was a horrific thing. Yeah. And things that, something that you didn't really want to depict. Right. In the same world, the ancient world may not have wanted to depict serpents. Yeah. But now we're very comfortable with it. But if you if you try to get into the mindset that uh, crucifixion is humiliating, torture, and reserved for slaves, then you might uh, begin to understand the... The horror of looking upon, you said, this bronze serpent that was supposed yeah. to heal you. Right. And how right. strange that might be. And, it, you know, it's interesting how, you know, the, that medical symbol of the two serpents on on a staff, um, if we take that, uh, that analogy of the serpent being death and looking upon it brings healing, you know, on just on a purely natural um, basis, you know, in order to defeat disease doctors and scientists have to study the disease, right? Uh, and so, like, you, you examine it, you put it under a microscope, and you're paying attention to that which causes death. Again, this idea that you're not shying away from it, not sweeping it under the rug for it to come back bigger and badder than ever, right? There's this sense that, like, we recognize death, and now by analyzing it, we hope to over- overcome it, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um uh, yes, that's like natural medical um, uh, uh, medical basis, but I think there's something there that will then, as we see, bleeds into um, what this feast of the exaltation of the cross is about. So, yeah, I I agree. Our second reading that that we have here is is a very again, it's 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 packed. It's one of the most commented on passages in, in the Bible, certainly in the, in the New Testament. There's a lot of scholarship that gets into mm-hmm. this Philippians 2, 6 through 11. I, I'm not going to get into the scholarship on that. Well, it's considered a canticle? Um, yes, it's right? a hymn. It's a hymn, right, um, yeah. A lot of times we'll see it like as a Christ <clears throat> hymn, a Christ poem, and of course the scholarship you know, debates about did, did Paul write this? Was it a pre-Pauline okay. tradition? Yeah. But in, in the end, it doesn't really matter what is certainly known is that Paul had the hymn yeah and he he used it as the the centerpiece of of the letter to the the letter to the Hebrews the letter to the Philippians, uh, to, to the Philippians. Yeah. and it's it's called Paul's master story mm. and I like that because I think it's the foundational narrative or like the the myth poem about Christ and when I say it's the myth of Christ I, I don't mean it the derogatory sense of not of or, not true, right. but it's it's the guiding story that yes. reveals deeper truth, right? Exactly. More than moral exhortation, right? It informs us who we are essentially. Right. It gives us our identity, right? You, right. Know, there, you can That's say what a myth is that the myth of of America, the the foundational mythos of the founding yeah. fathers and right, who exactly. they were, and yep. um, every society has that foundational myth, and that's for Paul. This letter to the Philippians, this uh, particular passage, is that mm-hmm. that this tells us the story of Christ in just a few verses. Right, right. Uh, yeah, it's and, and in a lot of ways, it summarizes uh, salvation history. Mm-hmm. Well, or uh, at least um, from the incarnation right, on. Right. Uh, and so it begins with Christ, though he was in the form of God. Uh, you can think of him as God above 
the heavens, like the heavens of the heavens. He did not regard equality with God something to be grasped at. Rather, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, coming in human likeness. And so you have this imagery of Christ, the second person of the Trinity, above the heavens, descending, right? Coming out of his father's heart, as it were, all the way down into God forsakenness. Right. This is uh this is how I know some commentaries I, I've heard about this passage as being the uh the image of the hero's journey. Uh, and this is where we get the idea of Christ as the archetypal hero. Right. Where he has left his comfort zone. I'm using like, you know, story imagery here. Right, right. Uh, his homeland, right? That which was he was familiar with and entered into the chaos, right? Uh, and not only just coming into the world of chaos, but then entering into chaos itself, right? Undergoing the darkest parts of humanity. The, the innocent person who undergoes punishment that is reserved for the most guilty uh, in society. And so, and this is what Paul says as we're continuing through this hymn. Coming in human likeness and found human in appearance, he humbled himself becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, I love how Paul, um, he, he, uh, he particularizes that idea of death. It's like not, he's not just entering into the human condition by, and then dying, but he's going even deeper than that, like even death on a cross. Uh, and then because of this, God greatly exalted him. So this descent and then ascent, right? right. Um, ready to <laughs> in a sense, right? Uh, yeah, it's it's it's. I, I love this imagery of just. Um, this is where we get the idea of kenosis, emptying of oneself. Yes, the self-emptying. Right? Yeah. Uh, and so. Well, yeah. the, there's a lot working in the background to such a small passage, and really even a small letter, in the grand hmm. scheme of Paul's letters. Um, you have the background of what you alluded to the the suffering servant, depicted by Isaiah. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have, a little bit of a an anti-Adam motif. That right. Christ is being compared with Adam. Then you have uh, even a confrontation with the emperor or the Roman emperors and the Roman gods. Mm-hmm. Because what Christ is doing, no Roman emperor would do and no Roman god would do. So pr- throughout the letter, you get sort of these quasi-political undertones mm. suggesting that that this is the new story of Christians. It's, right. it's not the story of Rome. It's the story of Christ that yeah. is that is the foundational myth. Exactly. But if we want to, I want to hit on this point. Well, we'll hit on more than more than this. But this connection to Adam, I think, is very interesting. That this he didn't deem equality with God something to be grasped at. Right. So you know, Adam grasping for, at, for the yeah. for knowledge. You will be like God. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. He's, yeah. He's grasping to be like God, but Christ is emptying himself. Yeah. So. You can say on one hand, Adam was already like God by friendship and yeah, grace, right. but by nature was not. Mm-hmm. He, but when he grasped, he wanted to be like God by nature. Yeah. But Christ is saying, I am God by nature, and I, I will to be less. Right. So Adam w- desired to be more than what he was, but Christ actually desired to be less yeah. than what he was. And Adam reached for his own sake. But Christ emptied Himself for your sake. Right. That's for, a, for that's, sake a, of that's a beautiful, 
paradox. And, you know, Christianity is full of paradoxes, right? right. The, the mighty has been cast down from their thrones and, you know, God has lifted up the lowly. Um, you know, the, the small virgin maiden from Nazareth crushes the head of the serpent who was the greatest angel in heaven. Uh, and ultimately at the center of all this is the incarnation, mm-hmm. is, is, like you said uh, perfectly, the anti-Adam, the opposite of Adam. You know, um, by nature, uh, we're tempted to aspire to more than what we are, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but yep. by grace, that subverts that motif. And now Christ is showing us another path. path. That seems, on the face of it, uh, uh, degrading to dignity, right? It's almost like undignified. But it's through that subversion and through that obedience and taking the form of a slave that then he is lifted up. Um, that's really, it's yeah, you can split this um, passage almost into two as the total emptying and then total fulfillment. Um, yes, and that that's typically how it's broken down is into two acts. Mm-hmm. So again, it's, it's almost like this small, small narrative. Yeah. You know, act one is humiliation, mm-hmm. and then act two is exaltation. Right, that right. Christ became man, you know, the, the, the story of the incarnation and then the story of the crucifixion, but then was exalted yeah. for, for that. Exactly. And in fact, all of creation, you know, St. Paul says, it's not, you know, he, he does it for the glory of the Father, but he says that every knee should bend of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue profess. So it's all of creation, this like cosmic... Um, this cosmic event mm-hmm. that that Christ is is lifted up, yeah. Um, and I, I think you see that kind of a, in in the resurrection afterwards is that Christ redeems all of creation again. Yep. And yeah, and I, I know Saint uh, Saint. Oh my gosh. Well, maybe one day Ratzinger talks about this mm. as like as a a important moment for the like kind of exegesis of cosmic liturgy. That yes. This this idea of bending the knee that it becomes a particularly Christian gesture right. to to bow in adoration and to kneel and I think that's something very foreign to our modern American minds and modern minds in general sure. is that when one kneels one is is giving an outward expression of devotion to to Christ yeah as as actually the right. the person the Lord that you bow to yep. Um. And you do that in the liturgy. You bow and you kneel. Yep. And it's all done from for the Father too, right? Mm-hmm. And so, again, from from the beginning, he was in the form of God. He emptied himself, coming out from his relationship with the Father. Let's say, and then at the end, when every knee is you know should bend of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Is exalted above, um, above all. He says, "To the glory of God the Father." Right. So, you know, and that's what we see with the the procession of the the persons of the Trinity, right? Like the Father sends the Son, who sends the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit then gathers all into one, who brings him back to the Son, and the Son brings it back to the Father. Right. right? So, um, you have this, you know, beautiful Trinity here too. Um, a, trin- a little trinitarian flavor. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. Wow, that's yeah another element to this 
this passage. There, there's so much, so much in this passage. Um, the, the also the idea of you know his his divinity was not something to to be exploited for gain. You know, mm-hmm. as as Adam may have exploited it, but instead he's obedient, and and this is not a contradiction to his divinity, but actually mm. a shocking manifestation. Yeah, of, it's a, of yeah, exactly. Again, That's the, a good point. This is the it's a revelation of who God is, which is love, right? right. Uh, this yeah. is this is the revaluation again yeah. of that Nietzsche talks about. Is it's God is saying actually on the cross is me manifesting divinity right, in triumph. Right, right. That this is actually yeah. the behavior of God is yep. to descend for your sake, yeah. to be humiliated right. for your sake. Right. But then it's, it's that love of all things again to the Father, right? And so on the cross, we're actually seeing what, what it means for, to say that God is love. is like total outpouring of the Father and the Son. Yeah. Um, so it's yeah. a revelation of, and, that, and that's why I think also uh, when, when Paul says that God greatly exalted him, Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. And I, I you know, I discussed this with um, someone. Was it with my class? So I don't know. I had a conversation once <laughs> about this idea that um, we can actually know God's name, right? And in, what's encapsulated in a name is is someone's identity, right? Uh, you know, so for example, I can describe myself um, physically like I'm five eight, I have dark hair. Uh, I can give you all these descriptions of myself, but what captures me and my identity is my name, right? Father Jonathan Torres. <laughs> and once I say my name, or if once my name is said to someone else, they know who I'm talking about more than any descriptor. Can ever get provide sure. right, um, and so this idea that this name of God Jesus is above every name—that's his identity. And so when we say Jesus, we're actually encapsulating that which cannot be captured. Really, it's a, that's another paradox. But we're encapsulating um, all of this. What's in what's in this um, uh, in this uh, hymn, uh, Saint Paul's hymn here? We're encapsulating. Total radical love outpouring um, the nature of God Himself, right. essentially, yeah. and and so I just yeah I, I think it's um, very telling, and he talks about this name being above all other names. Yeah. This is the way to live, essentially. Mm-hmm. This is like the archetype of living, uh, is this name. So. Right, because I, I think you're right to point out that Christ, you know, forsakes his divinity. You know, it's, it sounds like uh, yeah. to be to be dramatic. You know, no, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I got you. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm not an Aryan or you know, <laughs> yeah, <right>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, out, out of you know, poetic uh, in a poetic nature, he forsakes his divinity out of love. He's not. It's like, well, you know, you all are hurting each other and you're hurting yourselves because you're dumb and you don't know what you're doing. It's actually no. I'm I'm pouring myself out to become like you, right? In all things except sin, <clears throat> because of my love for creation, right? Right. And and I know that I'm going to be killed. You know, I know that you won't love me back, but there's but some will, mm-hmm. and for the sake of you know, yeah, for the sake of some, I will, I will right. go. Um, he said that's very archetypal hero. Yeah, you know, if some can be saved, I'll I'll do it. You know, I'll I'll take on the burden. Right to to re to reclaim the creatures that I love, yep. or the creation that I love. Right, and that's what. Uh... 
you know, it's right, exactly. It, it's a it's a regathering of all of creation, and which is why um, Ratzinger in a spirit of the, litur- of the liturgy points to um, one passage that really encapsulates um, what the liturgy is getting at, and that's in John, where he says, "When Christ is when when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself." I think it's I when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all men to myself. And he's li- that's the exaltation of his cross. Mm-hmm. Um, he's drawing all things back together, right? Um, yeah. And the unity, the unity, the, the, the form that the that unity takes is not just a conglomeration of all things into this messy ball. It's um it's actually a, a unification of worship, right? That that those that every knee should bend in heaven and earth and under the earth. So it's a unity of worship. Um, and it's, it's it, like you, you mentioned before, it's that bending of the knee. Uh, that's how we're unified, is, is putting the name of Christ at the top. So, Yeah, and, and, and that name gives him this, this equality back, you know, that yeah, he actually right, has right. become, he becomes synonymous with, with the Father. Yeah, exactly. You know, he Be, was, right. you know, obviously exactly. was before... But yep. it's by this obedience and his death that he is able to to be Lord of of, of all things. Yeah, exactly. Because of this, this right. being that whole the obedient obediently accepting the cross, because of this, God greatly exalted him. Yeah. And there's a bit of uh, a structure of of hope here for Christians is is if you undergo this, if you enter into the pattern of Christ's life. You too will be exalted with him. Mm-hmm. That this is something that Christ did, that is true. But as the the archetypal hero, you're to follow in this way, right. and to know that although you may be treated as a slave, you may be de- degraded, you may be killed by this humiliation, you will be exalted as well. Yeah. Right, right. Sharing in the cross. Right, yeah, right. That it's it's not something Paul is trying to say here. I think this is not something external to you, but it's something you're supposed to enter into yeah. as well. Exactly. And pattern your life off of. Yeah, that's good stuff. Do you want to move to the gospel, maybe? Sure. Um, yeah, so the gospel uh, comes from John 3. Uh, this is the conversation between uh, uh, Jesus and Nicodemus. Uh, there's a lot in this chapter. Um, some beautiful stuff. Being born again, right? Um Yes. Uh, There's but, a lot of uh, dualities. He has light yeah, and darkness. Right. They're yeah. speaking at night. Right? Yes. It's really interesting. Um, but here, yeah. So here it begins uh, with Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, uh, saying that no one has gone up to heaven except the one who has come down from heaven. Again, alluding to Paul's letter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Exitus et reditus. In order to go up, you have to come down. And this is, you know... Um, I think we mentioned this before, Dante's Inferno, right? In order to for Dante to ascend to the heights of heaven, he has to traverse the depths of hell first. Right. Uh, and so you have to go down into, before you can come up. No one who has gone up to heaven except the one... No one has gone up to heaven, sorry. No one who has gone up to heaven except the one who has come down from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Yeah, this is not just a mere like connection um, that we can see. This is him saying just as right. it's very explicit of what's going on here. Um, 
Well, the, the the idea of seeing and believing is is very prominent in the Gospel of John. But then you also mm-hmm. have just sort of symbolically or imagistically, you have sight and belief are often used with similar images, you know, illumination, mm-hmm. brightness, light. So there's this idea that, you know, you have to look again, you look upon the cross as you as they looked upon the serpent and the illumination of my cross, the revelation mm-hmm. of the cross will inform your faith. Right. You know, it will inform you of what's happening right. here. Because, because, you know, something that's really radical that I think sometimes we don't um, focus on enough is that on the cross, Jesus becomes sin. That's what yes. we believe. Yeah. And just as the serpents was the cause of death to the Israelites, so too is sin the cause of humanity's undoing and death. And so when we put when we put up a cross, an image of the cross, not just a cross, a crucifix, and we see death nailed to a tree, we are, just as Moses did, we are, we are uh, showing forth in all of its gruesome glory what our, the, the source of our suffering is. And, you know, it's really interesting that um, after, there's two parts of this gospel, um, after he says that, just as Moses will be lifted up in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him might not perish, but might have eternal life. I love this caveat at the end. He says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think, you know, that's a, that can be taken as a caveat because in isolation, when you look at a serpent on a cross, uh, on a staff, or you look at the crucifix, you can think, is is this um, glorif- glorifying God's judgment, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it's almost like, you know, without context, you can be like, well, that's what's causing our demise. And God demanded that that be um, uh, exalted. It's like, are we, it's just, is this like a, uh, uh, is this a, a, a showing forth of just, what God has um, judged the world to be. It's like, this is your sin and now look at it, right? Um, it, it, it can almost be taken as a vision of condemnation, right? Right, right. The sight of condemna- uh, condemnation. Right, just as the serpents were punishment for their sins, yeah. and then they looked upon the, the thing of their punishment, you might say that's happening in the crucifixions. You're, you're, you're looking at the punishment of sin, which, which is, is death. death. Yeah, exactly. And, right. and this is what you... Not only are you looking upon the punishment and the death, but you're also looking on the judgment. Yeah. That this is the the judgment for sin. But you're right. If you leave it there, it does come off very uh, Christ punished. Yeah. For the sins of of the world. But it's not that alone. It's not just that. Mm-hmm. It's that he did this because he loved. He so loved the world. Right. That Christ said, "Let me take on their sins." Right. Like. Let let I, I'll I'll be the sacrifice. It's a you know Isaac and Abraham. You know I I will I'll be the sacrifice right. for them. Yep. Um, because they they can't possibly do this on their their own. So they let let the let the consequences I guess you know fall fall on me mm-hmm. that they may have life. Exactly. Um. 
And so when you're looking at Christ on the cross, you're looking at sin. You're, lo- you're looking at sin in the sense that all the powers of hatred and violence, injustice that has led to this moment of the Son of God being crucified, all of those powers are present in that image. And that's not just some abstract meditation that like, oh, you know, look at all the horrors of the world. You should take this personally and look at the cross and say, look how my sins brought Christ there, right? right? You're not looking at just sin in the abstract, but you're looking at humanity's sin and humanity includes you. Right. And so when you're looking at the cross, just as the, the Israelites looked at the serpent, the, the bronze serpent, and said, that's what's causing, you know, all my family members to die. You should look at the cross and say, this is what's causing all the suffering. And that's my sin on that cross. Um, hard to do. It should be hard to do. Right, right. To think the, of your sin, but yeah. Right. I, you know, analogously, the, the Israelites, again, they, their own sins brought about the judgment or brought about the punishment of, uh, of the serpents. And so they're looking upon that which they brought upon themselves. So, yeah. you know, you look upon the cross and say, this is, this is what my sins have done. Yeah, exactly. My sins have condemned a, an innocent man. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you also, you know, if, connecting it to the second reading, you, know, you talk about he had the appearance of a slave, you know, appearance of humans. Is that you look upon the crossing as the appearance of sin, mm-hmm. but without sin. Right. You know, as the, the, the golden serpent, or I'm sorry, the bronze serpent had the appearance of a serpent without venom. Right. That it's, it's now an instrument of salvation. It's a sign of salvation, just right. as, as the, just as the, the serpents were. So now the cross is a revelation of salvation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good stuff. There's, there's so, there's, there's so much. Um, there, there's also just like one brief note in the preface for this message. You have two options, I believe, but in one of them, uh, the preface before uh, the Eucharistic prayer, it says, For you have placed the salvation of the human race on the wood of the cross, so that where death arose, life might spring, life might again spring forth, like the evil one who conquered on a tree, like mm. likewise on a tree to be conquered. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So again, you have this, the inversion, the, the paradox. Right. That, um, although... You know, I don't want to stress the connection of the serpents because really the readings are about the serpents in the desert and not necessarily. No, right. You know. But I, I think that there is that connection. Like the, the serpent is ultimately an image of death and chaos, right? That's, yeah, that's right. You know, the dragon, you know, the image of a dragon is also an archetypal image of evil, which is uh, um, an evolved serpent, <laughs> I guess you can say. Yeah. Um, so, no, that I think that's totally valid. Yeah. But it, it's... <clears throat> I think that comes to light even more if we can briefly mention that the following day after the exaltation is the feast of our, or the memorial at least, of Our Lady of Sorrows. Right. So you have Mary, I think, as as the archetypal new Eve. Mm-hmm. You have her as the new Eve. You have Christ on the cross as the new Adam. And so while Eve was deceived by the foot of the, at the foot of the, uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Mary actually is obedient and mm-hmm. doesn't um, isn't do, doesn't tempt the new Adam, her son. Right. So she knew that Christ could come down from that cross, right. but didn't tempt him yeah. to do so. But in fact, pushes him on 
to complete the pain. Right. And to complete the, the or to go through the pain and to complete the, the, right. the cross. Right. Um, there's this, you know, Mary says that she's the, the servant of God, the, the doula, right? The, the, that's um, Greek, you know, servant. And I think there is something about her, her role here in the, the birth of the church. You know, she's, she's bringing Christ through the pain of the cross. Mm-hmm. She, she's kind of coaching him through the pain. Right. And to say that to, to bring about the birth of the church, you must keep going. Yeah. You must keep laboring, mm-hmm. and the church the church will will come about. But she, but this can only this can only happen if she does not give into the temptation of Eve for power, but instead is obedient. Right. So yeah, right, and the you know the ultimate image of um, Mary's suffering and her identity is that image of the Pieta, right? Yeah. When when he's taken down from the cross. And given back to his mother, she, you know, it's it's not, it's not a comforting. Um, oh, my son is now safe in my arms, but my son is dead in my arms. But that's the natural consequence of her letting him be free, right? And so, you know, when you all so many commentators have talked about the Pieta, but you know, she's her arms are not grasping her son; they're actually opened. Uh, mm-hmm. Almost like this sense of like I'm letting him be free. Um, her face is not full of regret. It's not full of um, you know extreme agony, but it's actually at peace. Um, almost like this fulfilled sense of like she was confident in her choice, you know, to, to let mm-hmm. her son be free. Yeah. Um, so you know, Our Lady of Sorrows, like that 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 image is, and, and that memorial. Is not a a memorial where we um, remember how much you know she was agonized in, in almost like she wishes that her son didn't die. It's a deeper sorrow than that. Um, but she's not regretting her decision, right? Um, and she is like as the archetypal mother, the ideal mother who lets her son be free uh, and to grow up to be a man. Uh, she she is naturally going to be sorrowful because any mother mo- any mother that lets her son be free is going to let her son be enter into suffering. That's just natural. Um, so her, like her sorrow is intrinsically tied to her free choice um, uh, to bear the son of God. So, yeah, I think it's a good point. She's not um, sorrowful. Uh, she's not sorrowful in the, in the, in a sense that you might think it's more that uh, her son is carrying the, the the sins of the world and and she's sorrowful for that for yeah the, the exactly sins. Um, but also knowing that he must complete his his his, his mission he, he must complete his mission yeah um and that she is not sorrowful for yeah right that's true well good stuff um guess we'll leave it there we don't want to go too long but like I said we could talk about we could continue to talk about this cross. for a while yeah, but, I know. There's a lot um, here. but you know what he'll come back next year. That's right. And we can <laughs> add, add we can just keep adding to this one. But yeah. uh thank you so much for listening to this uh special bonus episode on the Exaltation of the Cross and Our Lady of Sorrows. Uh, thank you uh for your support and thank you for listening. Thank you.